Welcome to another episode of Inside Startup Investing. As always, I am your host, Chris Lestrino, founder and CEO of King's Crowd. Inside Startup Investing is a number one podcast for learning about the best startups and investors in the online private markets. If you are a startup investor, this is a show for you. This podcast is powered by King's Crowd's proprietary rating technology that helps us to uncover the best founders and stories that you need to hear about before clicking invest. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, LawCloud, the premier solution for founders to prepare to raise capital online. Whether you need to file a Form C, a Form 1A, or a subscription agreement, LawCloud provides the lowest cost, easiest to use toolkit for founders to make raising capital online easier than ever. Now, on to today's show. Today, I am joined by Courtney Boyd Myers, who is the founder and CEO of Akua. If you like unique new food groups, uh, this one is definitely an episode for you. I had personally not heard uh, of this food, which I don't know if that's a reflection of me or not, um, but I was really interested to learn more about kind of the alternative meat category. Um, and this is one alternative meat that I had not heard of before, which I think is really, really exciting. Uh, They have some incredible traction and are building a really cool company that is currently raising capital on Republic. So with that, uh, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, Chris, I'm really excited to be here. We are uh, big fans of everything we've done with King's Crowd so far. Awesome. Well, happy to have you on the show today. Uh, For those who don't know who you are, please give us a little bit of background about yourself and what you're up to at Akua. Yeah, so I'm Courtney Boyd Myers. I'm the founder and CEO of Akua. Um, I grew up between Connecticut and Cape Cod, where Chris is right now, and have been obsessed with the ocean ever since. I think some people are desert people, mountain people, and some people are ocean people. I am definitely the latter, and I think you are too, Chris. And I just really um, spent most of my like. 20s in journalism and consumer tech startups and being around entrepreneurs who had found their calling, it felt like. And I was consulting and I was writing stories and I I hadn't really felt like I'd found like that one thing that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Um, I was getting much more into thinking about my work when it comes to climate change. I I'm very sad in seeing the effects of climate change just on, you know, the local communities around the New England area when it comes to, you know, the sort of depleted fish stock, um, you know, the the sort of really intense storms like Hurricane Sandy. And I was thinking, what is my part in fighting this? And I think every there's a million different solutions to climate change, but the one I was most drawn to was food systems. And I always have been really a healthy eater, very plant-based. And I, you know, was talking about all of this at a dinner party. And a friend said, well, how about you come visit this really cool regenerative kelp farm? And I was like, I love seaweed. You know, that's that's like, I've always been like that person in an Asian grocery store making my own seaweed salads. I thought it was kind of strange that as typical non-Asian Americans, like we don't eat seaweed on a daily basis. Um, so I went out and I learned all about the amazing environmental benefits of farming kelp, which we can get into. I knew about the health benefits and really decided that that would be my business, getting more people to eat kelp um, for all the right reasons. I don't know much about kelp, 
Um, I guess I don't know very much about seaweed either. What is kelp? Is it a strain of seaweed? Like, just explain a little bit more about what kelp actually is. Of course, yeah. So I joke that um, not all seaweeds are kelp, but all types of kelp are seaweed. So seaweed is the more catch-all phrase. It includes microalgae and macroalgae. Um, the difference there is you see micro under a microscope. Macroalgae is more like an underwater plant. You can see it. It photosynthesizes. So if you remember from science class, that means that it's sucking in CO2 as it grows, its body mass, and basically exhaling oxygen. And so we, you know, think about seaweeds and kelp as, you know, what grows along the coastlines or these like beautiful kelp forests in Monterey. Um, kelp is a brown macroalgae. There's green, brown, um, and red. And it's really luscious and chewy and nutritious and a really key part of the ocean ecosystem. And we work with farmers, traditionally people who have been in the fishing industry and the lobstering industry who already are making a living off the ocean. Um, and they are planting their own kelp farms. So basically kind of recreating a kelp forest, but flipped upside down. And the kelp grows down from ropes. And it has the same benefits of a kelp forest in terms of battling ocean acidification. Um, and they're planted in the fall and harvested in the spring. And then we take that and turn it into delicious products. So now you have the kelp. You want to get more people to eat the kelp. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your strategy for doing that? How are you making that happen? Yeah, I mean, this has been the biggest challenge of the business is bringing something new and innovative to market where, you know, you've got limited funding as a startup. You are, you know, limited also just attention span of people listening, whether it's through email or, you know, Facebook ads. Um, so we went really hard in the beginning talking about the climate change benefits of eating kelp, and that's why you should eat kelp. Then we started talking about the health benefits of eating kelp and why you should eat kelp. And now we just talk about how effing delicious our products are and why you should eat them. And the reverse of what I just said is the most important order in getting people to try your product. You want to lead with this is effing delicious no matter what it is. Two, this is healthy for you. And three, yes, it's sustainable too. And you can check that box as a consumer pulling it off shelf. Got it. So the, the lineup that you have right now, let's talk about the specific products that you're selling. Yeah, so we have quite a few because we're a multi-channel business. So we sell um, all of our products online pretty much. Um, the two biggest sellers are our kelp burgers in bulk packs. And we also have a ground meat, which is the same recipe as the kelp burger, but it's just in a brick form versus in a patty form. Um, we sell that ground meat into food service nationwide. Chefs use it to make bolognese or tacos or their own burgers with a burger bowl. And then the kelp burgers, we sell into retail nationwide. And we have three different flavors of the kelp burger. We have an original, a chili sesame, and a lemon and herb. And then we have um, two new products that just launched this month in collaboration with Nickelodeon SpongeBob SquarePants. And these are basically slider shape so mini burgers of our original kelp burger and then we have a barbecue version for kids too wow so i imagine prior to starting this business you had not cooked with kelp before 
That's correct. I mean, I, I on that kelp farm, I was taking just basically um, blanched kelp that was in noodle form back to my house, and I became obsessed with eating it. I love just like the energy I feel from eating kelp. I love the texture. It's kind of somewhere between like a kale and like a linguine. Um, and it's really versatile. And so that was really just the first few years of our business is figuring out how to take kelp, put it into a product that would make it accessible for people um, to eat. Because just sending them like big bags of like frozen wet noodled kelp was like a little intense for your average American consumer. And we felt like the burger is such a terrible symbol of the American food system where you basically have a product that's mostly made from factory farming. Um, you know, it is a really unhealthy product most of the time if it's if it's made from, you know, cows that have been giving a lot of hormones and antibiotics. Um, and, you know, we thought, why don't we do a product that can be a symbol of everything that's right with the American food system, you know, sourced in a way that is healing for the planet and actually healthy for you? Because a burger is fun, you know? It's like, I love the idea of summer holidays and eating burgers, and there's just something just beautiful tradition about that, and we want people to have a, a product that can fit into that tradition that they feel really good about. So you said that the, you had a lead with a product that tasted freaking delicious, to use your words. So how did you get it to taste delicious? How did you get it to be something that's like exciting to the everyday consumer? Yeah, so our recipe with the kelp burger is basically this umami punch. It is a combination of kelp and mushrooms and extra virgin olive oil. It really separates it from any other plant-based products that are on the market today. Traditionally, in Asian culinary like traditions, there is a kelp and seaweed and mushrooms in most of the dishes. You know, these are two arguable superfoods that are packed with tons of vitamins and minerals for you. Um, and then I think a lot of plant-based food companies look at fats to replace like the animal fat in products, and a lot of them use coconut oil, uh, which I love coconut oil, but it just doesn't taste super delicious compared to like a lot of delicious extra virgin olive oil. Um, so I think that the, those are our keys to that. And then we use um, other really, you know, kind of complementary vegetarian ingredients that people are used to, like quinoa and black beans, tomatoes, um, to, you know, basically complement those those core ingredients. For anyone who's not as aware of kind of how you build these CPG food type product uh, categories, typically what I found, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but typically what I found is you kind of have to begin with that direct consumer. You need to show that you have a fan base and a group of people that love you and are purchasing your product and that you can do this at scale. And then eventually that provides the opportunity to potentially get the big retailers to want to buy in and have your product on their shelves. And then you take that step. So direct to consumer is always in, in recent years has been kind of that first step to proving that you have a product people are going to want. Um, so can one, correct me if I'm wrong on that path, but two, can you talk to us about some of those early adopters and those people who started eating your product? What did they look like? Uh, mm -hmm. And how has that opened the doors to getting into retailers? Yeah. So because we've been a direct-to-consumer company from day one, we have a lot of data on who eats our product. And it is in three main categories in order of kind of who orders the most. Um, one, we have a lot of babies. 
it's amazing. It's, it's, it's your mom. It's my mom. People who, you know, are really just tired of all of the sort of beyond and impossible fanfare and want to feed their kids and their grandkids healthy food. Um, people who've been told, you know, as they age, they need to think more about healthy food. And, and a lot of them are encouraged to eat seafood, but maybe they don't want to eat fish because they're hearing all these things about heavy metals. So yeah, I think that's been an, a really interesting group for us. Two is we've got basically this busy millennial mom, right? You take our product out of the freezer and seven minutes later you're eating. Um, you know, you and I grew up with like the lean cuisine world or like, you know, the really crappy microwave dinners. And I think that like you're seeing a resurgence of like actually healthy frozen food because it's a great way to ship food. It means it has a really long shelf life. We don't pre-cook our products. Every, all the ingredients are fresh and then flash frozen. So like all of the vitamins and minerals are preserved. Um, and then I think three is you're starting to see like I pitch a lot of investors right now are arguably all in their like you know 50 to 60 age spread and they're all like okay I like this but you know like my daughter or my son are gonna love this they're a vegetarian they're vegan and you're trying to see this like whole new generation of kids growing up who like actually really care about what's happening in the world with the planet and I would say that like Arguably, these are kids of investors who, you know, are brought up in wealthy homes with lots of, you know, lots of the similar types of education and exposure. So I'm not saying that that's like widespread, but I, I am seeing that as a real trend. And so these are kids who maybe aren't buying it yet, but are coming out of school and will be our consumers. And that's where the SpongeBob partnership is is really exciting. You know, I think SpongeBob came out 25 years ago. So people who are 20 years old right now, that was like their cartoon a hundred percent i definitely think that's a a really good name to put to it and it, and it kind of works with the whole like you know ocean vibe right totally uh, thinking about the the business side of things uh you mentioned impossible um and and the other brett beyond as well so you know i know that's a category that's lost some steam people thought it was just you know it was going to take over meat and dominate and then whatever it, it kind of lost that that energy that it had around it when those companies first ipo'd um, what do you think kind of separates this apart from that part of the market and is a different tone, a different opportunity to get excited about? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the big, flashy plant-based companies, you know, that IPO, let's just name them, you know, like Beyond and Impossible, they raised billions of dollars, I mean, like at least a billion dollars uh, for really just helping to create this incredible market of people who are open to trying plant-based. Um, you've got like, you know, Kim Kardashian and Snoop Dogg and like all these celebrities telling you that you should eat Beyond and Impossible. And that's great because it, it's, it's made people curious. Now, what's kind of been a backlash is this, oh, you know, plant-based products actually aren't healthy for you is what I'm hearing people say. And it's because they associate plant-based with these behemoths who made products that mimic meat. And in order to get that close to mimicking meat, you got to use a lot of, you know, different overly processed lab grown ingredients. And I, and I think that we've got people who are getting smart to that and hip to that, but then at the same time, kind of distrusting the category. Um, so we really are shouting about this is not a burger you're going to take a bite into and think this is a cow. 
Um, and no, we're not just targeting vegans. We're targeting people who've been opened up to eating more plant-based or flexitarians, and they want products that are delicious and healthy for you. So we sort of see it as this like third wave of the plant-based food movement that, that us and a few other great clean label plant-based companies are driving. I love that. I, I have certainly heard that, that people are concerned that it's not in fact healthy. And I think it's like, it's a wholly new thing, right? Where even saying like, oh, it, it sees these lab grown, you know, ingredients, people are kind of like, well, I'm not so sure I love that concept of lab grown versus, hey, you're farming this fresh kelp. This is a fresh ingredient, um, which I think is really unique and valuable for the market. Um, so once you kind of have driven that adoption, then the opportunity to really scale a business like yours is through the retail channels. So talk a little bit about the, the traction that you're seeing in the retail channel. Yeah, so we are in about 800 or 900 grocery stores now nationwide. Uh, half of those are in LA. So we've gone really regionally focused, like basically both coasts are where we're focused right now in terms of getting into stores. That said, we are partnering with some great chains like across the middle of the country because I think like oftentimes two strategies. So the first one I mentioned, the coast, that's obvious, right? People have more access to seafood there. They're more open to eating things from the sea. I mean, even myself, when I lived in Utah, I didn't eat as much seafood. You know, we ate like river fish and lake fish, but you weren't eating as many things from the ocean because you're further away. Um, and two, I think that generally the coasts, you, you have a lot of cities like LA that are more open to health and wellness trends. Um, and then two, you know, we're partnering with these chains that are across the rest of the country because a lot of brands kind of ignore that part of the country at first. And so people that are going into health food stores are looking for new things to buy. And we really stand out on shelf as a new thing to buy. And we've gotten into really conventional retailers as well, like Albertsons. And we've done really well because a lot of the trendy food brands like don't go into the really conventional stores. They go into Whole Foods and Erewhon and like they're in this like crowded market of, of all the other brands that are trying to get in there. And that's not to say we're not trying to get into Whole Foods. We are. We're in active conversations with them. But some of these conventional players have taken shots on us first. Um, so some of these conventional players, we were really nervous about, you know, what is this little one blue kelp burger box? How is it going to do on shelf? How much marketing money do we need to support that? And we've just crunched basically two quarters worth of data. Um, so there's a third party um, platform called Spins that analyzes retail data. And there's only six brands in the entire plant-based food category that are actually growing and we're the second fastest growing plant-based food company that sells burgers so that's really exciting um obviously we are looking at you know some of our closest competitors we had a company copy us end of last year um and they've got much larger distribution than us but we're it looks like we're um outselling them on shelf about 3x which is really really great so We've got some nice stats to hang on to and we're, you know, using those to talk to other retailers and, and you know, helping to get more of our SKUs on shelf at the retailers we already are at. So when you think about growth is really the next two, three, four, even five years is the, is the whole focus going to be on retail, 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 or do you find that the direct consumer channel still has plenty of room to run? No, I mean, I think our direct to consumer, we need to... Shipping, overnight shipping costs are getting pretty out of control. And in the winter, we can do two-day ground shipping. We can use get less dry ice, so that makes it a little easier. 
But yeah, this summer has been really tough for us in terms of like making that part of the business break even. So our real focus is retail and food service. Um, we just opened up with uh, a new food service distributor called Baldor, which you might know from New York City. Um, and then with retail, we work with UNFI and Kahee. They're the two largest natural food retailers, and we're in distribution points all over the country with them. Um, and so we're we're in a good spot to really grow. We've got a, a lot of the warehouses open. You know, we've returned on a lot of the stores, and now we're instead of opening up more warehouses and more distributors, we're really focused on driving velocity where we're at. Got it. I know. You know, when you're at kind of a, a smaller scale cost of, of these products can be pretty high. And, and obviously, as you scale up, those will start to come down in terms of manufacturing. Um, I'm curious to just hear a little bit about supply chain costs related to the actual growing of kelp. Like, how much kelp is out there? That How many farms are out there that are growing uh, this kelp? And, and can that support, you know, a pretty vast amount of growth? Yeah, so we work with an awesome um, supply chain partner who basically builds and manages the relationship with all of the farmers. They, you know, pick up the kelp. They look through it for quality checks. Um, we work with approximately 40 farms right now. And, you know, our growth is very tied to, like, the growth of the industry. Right now, the growth of the industry is outpacing. I mean, it's it's exploding. There's so many fishermen going into this and growing kelp. In fact, there's a kind of a supply chain problem right now where there's way more kelp than people are buying. Um, so who knows if that will stay the same? You know, we hope that it doesn't. We hope that, you know, our farmers are are able to, you know, sell all the kelp they grow. But at the moment, you know, it's, it's a little lopsided. Got it. And can you access the products in all 50 states or is there a limit? Yes. Um, all continental, so 48 states. So Hawaii and Alaska, it's just too much of a pain to ship there. But we are in stores in both states. And if you go to Okuda.co, you can go to the store locator, look for a store near you. And if you're not there, we're sold on GTFO. And so it's an easy way to buy a two-pack. We're getting set up on Thrive Market soon. But yeah, the website is, is an easy, easy way to buy it. You just have to buy big bundles the whole e-commerce game. Understood. And last question for you, you know, for those who are new to this category, are new to kind of CPG companies, you know, what's your your bullish case and reason to say, hey, you should invest in this company today? Yeah. So right now, investors, that we have about 200 investors that have put in money into our crowdfunding campaign at a $15 million valuation. We did a um, equity price round in 2021 at a $10 million valuation. We are able to basically, you know, a as we grow, you know, we expect the valuation to go up. And we also get a little bit of a premium on our valuation from investors because of our climate goals. Um, and the reason for that is as you look in the future, especially as 2030 approaches, you have a lot of these big CPG brands who've made like really hard climate commitments that they're nowhere near fulfilling. And so we think that as we grow, as we get like into the tens of millions of revenue, we're going to be a really competitive acquisition target for big CPG companies who A, are looking for cleaner, healthier plant-based foods because that's what consumers want, but they're also looking for companies that help them tick a box around climate change. For other founders who are listening, because as many investors listen in, we also have tons of founders who love to listen in and learn more too. Um, what has been, and I'd love for you to be as you know authentic, open as you can be. What has been one of the greatest challenges? I mean, you're creating 
a new product in a new category, I know what you're doing is immensely, immensely challenging. So what has been one of the greatest challenges that you've had to kind of overcome in your process as a founder of building Akua? For sure. So when I started this company, my background was in sales and marketing. I love selling. I love marketing. And we built a brand that was really well known. Our sales were great. I had a CFO as a co-founder who was really helping with operations. He left last year right after my first baby was born. He totally burnt out and needed to like excuse himself. So I got thrown into basically overseeing our operations. And there was a lot of things that were wrong. Now, recently, we're in a situation where, you know, we're in a really tough year for fundraising. I'm having to look at our P&L under a microscope and cut any little bit of fat I can find. And it's really hard. And I'm having to basically learn, you know, how to manage a P&L, which I understand that most founders should know from the beginning. But I always had a co-founder who helped with it. I've had great, you know, CFOs and accountants. And now I am really feeling like I'm in calculus where I have to go in, you know, after school, extra help, like all the time to really get through it. But I now kind of love it. Like I rewrote our chart of accounts for our accounting team. I didn't like the way they were categorizing things. I, you know, I was just like, you know, I, I think as a founder, you tend to drift towards or lead where your skill sets are. And it's very hard to find a founder that's skilled at like everything, sales, marketing, finance, and ops. And so having to learn those new parts of your business you know, if you can't afford to hire for it or if you don't have a co-founder that can cover it, that's been the, the greatest challenge. And it's it's ongoing um, because you just want to do what you love and you want to do what you know and you want to hire people to do the rest. But it doesn't always work out like that. Couldn't agree more. That is a really, really good point and something I do think people need to know, which is there is going to be many an occasion where you need to wear many or all of the hats uh, if need be. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insights and your story. Love what you're building. Uh, and for those who are interested, you can go to Republic and check them out. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want to use the same tools I do to find amazing founders like the ones I have on the show to power your investment decisions, you can head on over to kingscrowd.com backslash startups to try out our Edge Pro Toolkit for 30 days free.